Welcome to Oak City Church, a family of learners, lovers, and givers sent. For more information, visit us online at oakcitychurch.com. Let us know if we can help you in any way. Thank you for listening. Good morning. Thank you for joining us for week five in our series in the book of Nehemiah in the Old Testament. I'm going to start uh, today by asking you a question. If you had to grade us as a country, as a culture right now, on how we deal with each other when we disagree, on how we deal with our differences, what letter grade, A through F, would you give us? Now, we're obviously, I can't hear you, but I can hear you. I know, I know, it's D's, it's D's and F's, that's what we're getting, an occasional C from a really generous person, but it's D's and F's, and fair enough. If, if I followed that up and said, are we getting better or are we getting worse, how would you respond to that? And I think most of us think, well, there was the greatest generation in the good old days, so we have to be getting worse, this cannot be getting better, and I'm not so sure that that's the case. Uh, Hamilton has been just a phenomenon in the last few years. I've never, I've never seen Hamilton. I'm supposed to go see Hamilton in January if we're going to see things in January, hopefully, you know. But as I understand it, the climax of that thing is when Alexander Hamilton and Aaron Burr have a duel, and that's their way of settling their differences. And that's what we used to do, you know. So it might not be uh, getting worse. Congress actually had to pass a bill in like 1830-something to prohibit dueling in the District of Columbia, even though murder was already illegal because that's how we settled our differences. So maybe it's not as bad as we think it is, and yet it just feels like it's getting worse. We live in something referred to as cancel culture. Uh, That's not good, where the answer to our opposition isn't to listen and to understand and to ask questions and seek common ground and agree to disagree. It's just to get rid of people. Like that's what we want to do is see if we can get rid of people. And so, I mean, it's not good. There was, I saw this a few weeks ago, um, it got put out on the internet. It's supposed to be published in a magazine called Harper's in October. It was a letter signed by 150 people. So Harper's is, I've never read Harper's, but it's the oldest general interest monthly magazine still in publish in the United States started published in 1850 in New York City and it leans left um, politically but the uh, the letter was described as this as a stout defense of liberal values from people primarily on the left at a time when it feels like these values are under threat and by liberal values they don't mean like the Democratic Party platform you know Um, They mean like freedom of speech, you know, like a place where people get to express themselves that the way they want to uh, express themselves. And so part of the letter was this. They said, uh, the free exchange of information ideas, this is what they're for, the lifeblood of a liberal society is daily becoming more constricted. While we've come to expect expect this on the radical right, censoriousness is also spreading more widely in our culture. An intolerance of opposing views a vogue for publicly public shaming and ostracism, and the tendency to dissolve complex policy issues in a blinding moral certainty. We uphold the value of robust and even caustic counterspeech from all quarters, but it's now all too common to hear calls for swift and severe retribution in response to perceived transgressions of speech and thought. And so it's really speaking against cancel culture. It's kind of speaking against the idea of safe spaces. You know, that's become a thing. And for like, let's just talk this out. You know, 
people, it's 150 people from various political persuasions, you know, some names I recognize, but most I didn't, signed it, and people lost their minds when this thing got published. Uh, one one lady responded on Twitter, of course, and and she has a she has a platform. This lady, people know her. She said, "Here's what they want. These people want you to sit down. They want you to shut up. They want you to do as you're told by them specifically. They want you not to question anything they say. We want to be allowed to rewrite history and distort facts, all without having to engage with crit criticism. They are to totalitarians in the waiting. They are bad people." That's how she responds. She accuses them of doing exactly what the letter says they don't want people to do as she is doing exactly what the letter says that they don't want people to do, that she's accusing them of doing. If you disagree with me, just shut up and go away. And she doesn't even seem to realize that she's doing it. Outrage has become an identity, and I might even be a little bit outraged right now, but outrage has become an identity in our culture. We're having a really tough time disagreeing with people without demonizing the same people. I have a huge concern about this for a variety of reasons. I think everybody has to be wary of it. There's a real self-righteousness to it. And so, and this part of the Nehemiah story, I think, speaks into this issue of how do we biblically deal with people we disagree with? What does the Lord, how does he want us to respond to people that we disagree with? So um, he faces a lot of opposition. We're going to take a look at how he deals with that. Again, we're in this series um, the, in the book of Nehemiah uh, about, um, you know, how what's happening as they return from exile and they're restoring their identity as a people and rebuilding the city. And so Nehemiah has engaged the problem instead of ignoring the problem. That was week one. And week two was his confidence is not in his competence, but in the Lord. Um, week three was about agreeing to this big, bold, God-sized plan, you know, that's, that's, um, that's clear and it's risky and it's God's. And it calls us into that as well. And that, And last week was about bringing the people into it. And so this week, I'm going to um, I'm gonna move a little bit pre-last week, because last week is right when he got to Jerusalem. So I'm going to start before that, and then I'm going to go a little bit past it. And so this is, this passage where I'm going to start is, while he's on his way to Jerusalem, it says, I came to the governors of the province beyond the river, and I gave them the king's letters. And the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. So Sanballat and Tobiah are uh, political leaders in the, in the region and that, that oppose what he's doing. Sanballat is the governor of Samaria. He's actually a big deal. He's listed in the history books. Uh, and Samaria is important. You know, it's um, the, the parable of the Good Samaritan that Jesus tells, the, the story of him talking to the Samaritan woman by the well. That's all about Samaria. Samaria is, uh, it, currently it's the West Bank of Jerusalem. And so if you're from, if you've ever seen a map of that part of the world, um, that's what it is. And the Samaritans are uh, Jewish people that when, when the southern part of uh, Israel got taken into captivity to Babylon, they got taken to Assyria and the Assyrians only took some of them. And then they put some Assyrians in, they intermarried with them. And so they're kind of a mixed race people and that causes some of the tension. But whatever the case, Nehemiah going there to rebuild this wall displeases this guy greatly. He is perfectly content with Israel, with Jerusalem, excuse me, being in shambles. That eliminates a rival for him. And so he's kind of annoyed that somebody's going back there to try and do something about it. A few verses later, 
these guys come up again. Nehemiah has gone to Jerusalem. He's told everybody he wants to do. He's kind of put his team together. And it says, but when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they jeered at us and they despised us. And they said, what is this thing that you're doing? Are you rebelling against the king? So we get another, another character, Geshem the Arab, who is the king of the region of Kedar. He's also in history books. And they hear that he's actually, you know, mobilizing people to do something about it. And so they step up their opposition. It says they jeered at them and they hated him. They're active. They try and intimidate them. There's a bit of emotional abuse in this. In our, in our current day, they got on Twitter and Facebook or Instagram, you know, they called their character into question. Uh, they mocked him and they hated him. And hate can for sure be a weapon, you know? Have you ever been hated? Uh, does anybody does anybody hate you? How do you think it would feel or how does it feel to have somebody hate you? Do you think that you're hateable? Do you think that you're hateable? I think most of us think, no, no, I'm not hateable. <laughs> how could someone hate me? You know, and I think most people, when you get to know them, are really hard to hate consistently. Now, to be fair, I think most of us, if not all of us, um, are, are hard not to hate for a few minutes now and then, you know what I mean? But it's hard to stay hating at somebody. You really have to let yourself hate someone consistently. You gotta work at that. You gotta keep your distance and deny some facts and work not to understand what's behind their words or actions. And Nehemiah is a good guy, you know? I think he's probably a hard to hate guy. And then they lie about him. Uh, they say, are you rebelling against the king when he's got these letters from the king that he's already showed to all of the leaders around there. So they've seen the letters that say clearly he's not rebelling against the king. So this is slander. It's technically slander. And I don't know if you've ever had anybody do that, um, slander you. But have you ever been slandered, lied about by people with power? You know, maybe people at work. It might be people in your neighborhood or even people in your family, right? And that's uh, that's no bueno. Like you're helpless in that situation and it's hard. So that's their second step. At first they're displeased and now they start to intimidate. And then here's the third step. When Sanballat heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged and he jeered at the Jews and he said in the presence of his brothers and the army of Samaria, uh, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burn ones at that? And here it just feels like he's grasping at straws and saying he doesn't know anything about it, but saying these guys can't possibly do this, can they? And then his buddy Tobiah the Ammonite is beside him and says, yeah, what are they building? If a fox goes up on it, he'll break down their stone wall. This reminds me Whenever I read this, of um, there was Spike and Chester, the dogs from the Looney Tunes, and there's like the big bulldog and then the little dog that's like, yeah, boss, yeah, boss, and he slaps them away. That's these two guys, you know? And so they hear that they start building it and their manipulation and their slander didn't work. And so now they're angry and they're greatly enraged and now they're mobilizing. Now he's saying all this stuff in the presence of the army and saying, get ready, because it might be go time soon. Now, it says when Sanballat and Tobiah um, and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls was going forward, that the breaches were beginning to be closed. They were very angry and they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. So this is where Nehemiah is. Here's the first point I want to make. Of, I think I have five points here, but the first one I want to make. Christians should not be surprised by opposition. If you are following Jesus, you should not be surprised when you face opposition. And I think most Christians 
most folks that are, are, you know, actively trying to follow Jesus are pretty nice people and don't think we're very objectionable. And so we're pretty surprised when people object to us. But this progression in their motivations are really similar to what you see in the Bible in other places and what we see today. So you can go to the book of Acts and the early church starts in Jerusalem and the Jewish leaders are not big fans of the early church. And it's the same progression that goes on. Uh, at first it says they're displeased and then it says they're really jealous and then it says they're angry and then they do something about it. And so they move from verbal slander to arresting Peter and John and roughing them up but letting them go to eventually stoning Stephen and killing James. And they start killing the leaders of the church and it's the same progression. I think even today in our culture, you can see this increasingly uh, when it comes to people's response to their Christian faith. The people that are, you know, are probably low level, not real happy about it, you know, and think that's what it was then and that wasn't good then, so we need something new now. And they'll start to discredit it uh, verbally and then their opposition gets a little bit more aggressive, you know. And here right now, I feel like it's social and it's political, but um, it doesn't take take long to, to find out a lot about the persecuted church around the world. And in a lot of places in the world, it's super aggressive. And hopefully we don't get to that, but who knows, we may get to that. Uh, most of the time I, I find that the opposition is fairly subtle um, right now, but it's, it's almost like there are minds in our culture that you don't want to step on for fear it's going to blow up. Uh, a, couple, a couple months ago, I was given blood at the Red Cross place across from the hospital. And I get blood a lot because I had heart surgery. And so it's just, some, like, it's just something I get. And uh, so I go there frequently and it's the same lady after you give blood, you have to sit there for like 15 minutes and she tries to feed you chips or fruit snacks and something to drink. And so you sit there and talk to, she's retired. And so I've talked to her a few times. And this time we got into what I do for a living. Then I told her that I, I pastor a church and she said, oh, you don't pastor one of those evangelical churches, do you? I'm like, first of all, how rude is that? You know, but then I'm like, well, as a matter of fact, I do, you know, but I, it's just realized not just a perception that, that I think is probably a bad perception or a wrong perception, but the willingness to say that to someone who's a complete stranger when you're in this volunteer position was surprising to me. A couple, couple weeks ago, and I forget who I was with, but we were talking about a couple, probably a mile or two down from my neighborhood, they're building some new houses in this little spot. And there's this build, building going up next to it. And um, and I was asking somebody what that was. And they said, oh, that's a church. And they might have even known what I do for a living. And and someone else in the conversation said, well, I bet those people didn't know a church was going in across the street when they built those houses. Like suddenly living across the street from a church is a bad thing when I think that used to be a good thing, you know? And so in our culture, it's like, it's just changing. It's changing. Um, there are certain things that were, were basic Christianity for thousands of years that are getting increasingly unpopular in our culture. And we've lost families as a church because of that. Um, it, you know, and I, I don't think we've changed our positions when it comes to things. And there are things that are unpopular, maybe even with us, you know, uh, but we think that they're faithful to what the Bible says is true about an issue. And so we're seeking to conform to that because that's how we understand how we're supposed to understand um, the word of God. And people are going to, they're going to oppose that. They're going to oppose that. Um, the gospel creates that. When it comes to racial justice and when you talk about that, people are, you know, people oppose that because there's a threat to power. Um, 
and, and the status quo can be good for people. And if the status quo changes, then we don't know what it's going to be. And so people can be threatened by that. And the gospel does that. Uh, Jesus said this, I've said these things to you that in me, you may have peace in the world. He's telling his disciples right before he goes to the cross in the world, you'll have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world in the world. You're going to have some troubles. If you're not facing some type of opposition, you might not be following Christ in the way that you're supposed to be following Christ. You know, if you don't occasionally have opposition, the gospel itself is inherently confrontational. The gospel speaks to us and tells us we are messed up and we messed up so badly. We needed the son of God to come from heaven to earth and to die on a cross to pay the consequences for sins that we cannot pay the consequences for. Uh, we are alienated from God without Christ. God loves us, but our sin has marred that relationship with him. And in order to reconcile it, he gives us his son. And that's how we're reconciled to God is through his sacrifice. That is a confrontation. It's a confrontational message. And that confrontation, if, you, if you're not in Christ, if you haven't you know, accepted who Christ is and what he's done and decided to follow him, that confrontation is not between me and you. It's between you and God. But as an ambassador, I'm the one that brings that news. And so a lot of times I think people interpret it as it's a confrontation between me and you because in our culture, people don't see, A, they don't see God that way, and B, they don't see themselves as that bad. And, and again, this goes down to biblical authority and, and the Bible describes God as, you know, perfectly loving and incredibly patient, but not willing to put up with sin and, and us as the problem, but he's fixed the problem. And so there is a confrontation and it comes across as confrontational. And, um, you know, it, it's, I think we can come across as condescending sometimes and people can perceive us that way. And I promise that's not how I want to want to come across, but it, but it is, it's how people perceive it. So Christians shouldn't be surprised um, by opposition. Uh, Christians should not be looking, looking, looking to pick a fight. Christians should not be looking to pick a fight. Nehemiah wasn't looking to pick a fight. At his first mention of their displeasure, Nehemiah just mentions it. There's a no comment to it. Doesn't, doesn't say anything about it. The second mention, when there's verbal abuse and slander and intimidation, this is what Nehemiah says in scripture. It says, I replied to them, the God of heaven will make us prosper and we, his servants, will arise and build, but you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. He doesn't respond in kind. He doesn't disparage them to them or to anybody around them. He just says, hey, this is what God's told us to do and you can't stop us. He, he holds his ground, um, but, you know, doesn't, doesn't sink to their level. After they organize to come against them, this is what Nehemiah does. He prays. He says, hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads. Give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt. Do not let their sin be blotted out from your sight, for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. He doesn't respond to them. He responds to the Lord because the fight isn't his. The fight is God's and he knows that. His confidence from a few weeks ago isn't in his own competence. His confidence is in the call that the Lord has put on his life. And he knows that God ultimately is the one that has the power to bring justice into the situation. So he prays to God for justice. So he doesn't take the bait, but he didn't back down um, either. Uh, I, in, in my, um, my less redeemed sanctified days in college, there on Friday and Saturday nights when we would go out, there was a phrase that we would use every now and again, that you wanted to look out for guys that have beer muscles. 
So either the guys that you're with, you know, or guys around might have had a few too many drinks and they suddenly think that they're a little bit stronger than they are. This wasn't a huge problem for me because look at me, you know, I'm just not made for bar fights, but some guys are. And so you would realize that people are just like angry and they get a little alcohol in them and the anger comes out, but it's, it comes out because it's there. Like they're ready to pick a fight and we can't be those people. Now it would be like Twitter muscles. People have social media muscles. They've got Instagram muscles, whatever it is. And they feel empowered and whatever's in there comes out. Why are some people so quick to pick a fight? It's because we need to be right in order to be right, right? We need to be right about something in order to feel good about ourselves. And fair enough, because I love being right, you know, and we as a church, for sure, many times in the past, and certainly now at times use Christianity as a club to cover up our own insecurity in different situations. But most people's bluster today is ultimately motivated by a desire to cover up the wound of sin that only the gospel can heal. You know, we feel bad because we are bad, because we have a sin problem. And instead of owning up to that and going to Jesus and accepting what he's done to make us good, we find somebody else we think is worse than us. So we compare ourselves to them and then we feel good about ourselves. We don't use the love of God to make us whole, but comparison with others. And, and, then, we, and then hence cancel culture. We think they're so bad that they don't deserve to even be acknowledged. And if someone can be that bad, um, then we in comparison must be good. Uh, that's, a, that's a problem. The solution to sin doesn't lie in making someone else feel worse. It doesn't lie in comparing ourselves to the people around us in an arena where we win. It lies in realizing how much God loves us in spite of the fact that we're messed up and loving others in the same way that he has loved us. And if, and if we realize that we are the ones that are looking to pick a fight in the culture wars or we're feeding our righteous anger, then we really need to look in the mirror and ask if our identity is truly in Christ and what the Bible says is true about us in Christ or if our identity is in our ideological positions. And that's a problem. Um, Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Romans 12, Paul says, Repay no one evil for evil but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Don't back down, but don't take the bait as far as it's possible with you. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it's written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. So we need to not be looking to pick a fight. Christians need to make sure that the positions they are advocating are based in the Bible. They're based in the Bible. Your confidence should not be in the Lord if all you're doing is spouting your own opinion about something. Nehemiah's confidence in this situation was based on four months of prayer and fasting about the situation. He has done that homework. Are you on social media getting into it about issues of the day? Uh, if you are, that's, uh, that's fine. I get why people like to do that. I probably should do it more. I hate doing it. You know, because everything that can be misinterpreted via text is going to be misinterpreted. But if you're going to do that, make sure that your opinions are as much as they can be biblically based, right? You can surely have a biblically based opinion about race. You can have a biblically based opinion about how to vote. Um, you can you can have a biblically based opinion about wearing a mask. You can. You can. It's possible. It's going to be a looser opinion for that. You know, some of your opinions are going to be more firmly biblically based than others depending on the issue and how the Bible speaks to it. And you should be more confident in your opinions on issues the Bible speaks to more clearly. Uh, 
Tony Evans, in the, the Sunday night study that we're doing with Chosen Generation, he talked about this uh, a few weeks ago. Uh, he was talking about politics and he was talking specifically, he brought up the issue of abortion, but then talked about um, the issues of racial justice and just a, about life in general and how we term those issues. And, and this is how he put it. And if you've ever listened to Tony Evans, he's a great speaker, he uses metaphors. And so his metaphor was about life insurance. And he said, God isn't in the term life insurance, he's in the whole life insurance. And so he's not just concerned about life in the womb and he's not just concerned about life on earth he's concerned about the whole thing and so he said it's, it's people have different priorities with that and and you can see where they're coming from he said republicans tend to prioritize more defending life uh in the womb and defending the rights of the unborn but he said minorities tend to vote democratic because they feel like they do a better job of fighting for the underdog who are experiencing inequities um during their life on the earth, and he said you can make the case for either one of those things biblically. And that's okay, we should be able to understand that and have a discussion about it. And and it's like we've lost the ability to have that conversation even in the church. And there's probably an opportunity for us as the church to try and facilitate that conversation as we come into an election season. But I'm more and more convicted that you cannot be 100% biblically faithful and 100% politically faithful according to the system that we live in. Political parties are flawed, corrupt human institutions led by people who are attempted by power and who have imperfect understandings of the, how things should be and the problems that we face. And so I would rather that I be, and I would rather that you be biblically faithful and politically inconsistent than you be politically consistent, but biblically unfaithful. To say that again, I would rather that you be biblically faithful, but politically kind of all over the place, than that you be politically faithful and consistent, but biblically inconsistent uh, and, and unfaithful. And I don't think you can be both. I just don't think you can be both in our system, and that's okay. So um, we shouldn't be looking to pick a fight, and we should make sure that the positions that we're advocating are biblically-based positions as much as they can be. Here's the story goes forward and it says, Nehemiah prayed to our God and set a protection against them day and night. In Judah, it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There's too much rubble by ourselves. We will not be able to rebuild the wall. And our enemies said they will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. And at that time, the Jews who lived near came from all directions and said to us 10 times, you get out of there. You must return to us. And so here's my fourth point. The opposition should not dictate the actions of God's people. Our faith in the power of God should dictate the course of our actions, right? Our opposition should not dictate our actions, but our faith in the power of God. The, he was getting it from the outside, the inside, from everywhere. The people that are doing the work are like, man, it's too much. We can't do this. The job's too hard. The enemies were mobilizing and sending messages. We're going to get them. Even the Jewish brothers and sisters that didn't come to do the work but lived in the region were saying to them, "You 10 times they are relentless about it. You have to stay safe and protect yourself. You have to get out of there. In that moment, Nehemiah can focus on the opposition or he can focus on what the Lord has told him to be true about that. This is part of why you need to spend more time in prayer and in the Word of God and in worship 
and with the people of God than you do staring at your phone. I mean, you can read your Bible on your phone, but like looking at the news or social media or paying attention to the noise around you because whichever one you pay the most attention to is gonna dictate how you feel about what's going on and it will motivate your actions, right? It's, it's gotta be more from the Lord than the opposition. It says, so in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall, in open places, Nehemiah says, I stationed the people by their clans with their swords, their spears, their bows. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord. Remember the Lord who is great and he is awesome and he is strong and he is powerful. Remember the Lord and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. This is one of the studliest passages in the Bible. This is his William Wallace Braveheart moment. And it says, when our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had frustrated their plan, that God had frustrated their plan. Not that I'm some great leader, not that I'm some great general, not that I know what I'm doing, but God had frustrated their plan. Uh, we all return to the wall, each to his work. And so here's my last point. All right, here is my last point. We had, we had technical difficulties there, but I'm back. Christians should know who the real opposition is and where real power comes from. We need to know who the real opposition is and where real power comes from. And so I'm gonna finish with this verse from Ephesians chapter six. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Our opposition, our true opposition is not flesh and blood, it's, it's spiritual. And the battle is a spiritual battle and the victory is a victory that's been won at the cross by Jesus. And we walk in that confidence. And he says, therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, having done all to stand firm. That is a, a spiritual call for us. And it, we have to understand that. We have the chance to fight about this stuff with people every single day. We have a chance to engage the culture wars and, and we should do that. We shouldn't back down. We should stand firm, but we got to do that knowing where the real battle lies and that the people that we're talking to are people made in the image of God and they are not the true enemy. Uh, there is a different enemy. We shouldn't be surprised when our faith causes some problems. We should be surprised when it doesn't. You know, we should stand firm, not looking to pick a fight but and making sure that our identity is in Christ, not in being right about something. And if, if it is in being right about something, and we need to repent of that and just drive closer to the heart of the gospel and understanding just how loved we are in Christ so that we can give that love to the people around us. We need to pay more attention to what God says about us and about the issues and about the people around us than what the news says or the social media says about us and the issues and the people around us. And we need to trust in the power of God to be at work in our moment. And I'm convicted that, that by that because I feel like right now we're so isolated. I feel so isolated. It's hard to, to encourage one another. You know, it's hard to know how God is at work and the things that he's doing and, and who he's speaking to um, that we don't know. But we have to trust that God is at work. And I, I am confident that he is. He's doing tons of stuff right now that we're going to find out about in the weeks and months to come but there's so much noise around us that it's hard to pay attention to. So we have to trust that in the power of God, 
um, to be a workaround us and that he is and is going to and wants to do uh, great things. Father, thanks for this passage. Thanks that a passage that was written, you know, 2,500 story got played out 2,500 years ago can be so relevant to the things that we go through every single, single day, Lord. I pray um, that we would not be surprised by by opposition, Lord, but but have faith in the things that you've told us that we wouldn't feel the need to pick a fight because our hope and confidence is in you and what you say is true about us. Lord, I pray um, that, that we would be looking to your word and listening to you and ultimately that we'd be trusting in you uh, and looking to see in the things that you are doing around us. God, be at work around us, be at work through us. Draw us closer to yourself, draw people around us closer to yourself through the midst of this, Lord and um, give us the chance to play a part in the things that you are doing. We love you, and we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.